So Mr. Eichel says don't show the picture. It's now on the record for the Bible study for tonight. Hey, Second uh, Chronicles chapter 1 is where we are. Um, now Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and exalted him exceedingly. And Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the captains of thousands and hundreds, to the judges and every leader, every leader, and all of Israel, the heads of their fathers' houses. Then Solomon, all of the assembly with him, went to the high place that was at Gibeon. For the tabernacle of meeting with God was there, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. As we move into Second Chronicles, okay, so that's there. But as we move into Second Chronicles, it parallels Second Kings chapter three. So if you want to write that, and it's in this place that the Lord will appear to Solomon, the first of. We could technically call it three times. It's two times in person, and once it seems like it's through a prophet. But the first time it's going to definitely be in person. Skip down to verse 7. We've seen all this before. It's on It's on the Internet. You can go grab it. On that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask, what shall I give you? You ever feel like you wish God did that for you? And Solomon said to God, You've shown great mercy to David, my father, and have made me king in his place. O Lord God, let your promise to David, my father, be established, for you have made me king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. Now give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before the people, for who can judge this great people of yours, and we know that God says, because you didn't ask for riches or for your enemies, and I'm going to give you all these in your health. I'm going to give you all these other things. Look at verse 11. God said to Solomon, because this was in your heart, and you've not asked for wealth or riches or honor or life of your enemies, nor have you asked long life, but have asked wisdom and knowledge. For yourself, that you may judge my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you, and I will give you riches and wealth as and honor such as none of the kings have had before you, nor shall any after you have the like. And again, it's like at first glance, don't you kind of think that, man, I wish Jesus would do that for me? Show up and offer me anything? No? Nobody thinks that? Well, friend, he already asked. Sunday morning, we're going to start to see it. I'll give you a sneak preview. Ask, and it will be given to you. Oh, you mean I have to ask? He's not just going to give it to me? No. In the New Testament, you have to ask. For Solomon was given to them. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We're going to cover it. It's in the first uh, sermon that Jesus lays out there. It's there. However, Jesus is quoted as to saying whether or not will he really find faith on the earth when he comes. Certainly not in the Laodicean church. There's no faith there. Why bother asking Jesus for anything if you're in charge of your lives? So there's not going to be any faith there in that last day's church. Nobody's going to be asking. At least a vast majority won't be. 
Solomon only had one time he could request. One. That's it. But Jesus leaves the door open until we arrive in heaven. So at first glance, I might think, well, that's kind of a ripoff. How come you've never done that for me? Oh, because you don't want one time. You want unlimited. You do. And it's unlimited for us as his kids. Solomon is established as king. God has given him more than he needs to exceed. And what does Solomon do? I believe this is the start of his downfall. Look at verse 14. And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king and Jerusalem. So what's wrong with this? If you remember, he will buy powerful steeds from Egypt and breed them and, and then start producing these chariots or buying them, which will be way more value than of a horse. So kind of looks like a business transaction, all of his accumulation of stuff here. But it's still wrong because he wasn't supposed to go to Egypt for anything, let alone go there and buy horses. When Joshua won a great battle when they first came into the promised land, let me read to you what he did with his horses. Joshua 11:6. But the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid because of them for tomorrow about this time. I will deliver all of them slain before Israel and you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Why does God do that? Second Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. David defeated Hadadezer, king of Zobah, and took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. Also, David hamstrung all the, all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. So David got rid of most of them. However, in Psalm 20, David writes this. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. So we know where David stands as far as using chariots or using a means of something instead of the Lord. Because I don't think God's into that. You know, when when the first, when the whole idea of, I don't think many of you know this, maybe none of you, but my wife. When the whole idea of Texas dropped into my heart, I was convinced that my pastor, who was part of the inner group, would be there with all of them hanging out with Pastor Chuck. And someone would say, hey, there's a group of people in Texas. And I'd already floated this idea to my pastor. And Ricky would go, oh, hey, we got a guy. That's. You know, I figured, you know, there'll be some, you know, it's, I've heard the story so many times. You know, 30 people here. Wait, hey, send a pastor, 40 people here. And so I figured, hey, God could do that. And then as I was waiting on the Lord, asking him to confirm what he was showing me, I was at a pastor's conference and the, our administrator, he was new. He's going, hey, do you know how Bob Coy got to Fort Lauderdale? I go, yeah, they just got in a car and drove off and got there. He goes, yeah, well, they stopped in Vegas and called Costa Mesa and said, hey, because uh, he was their administrator for Bob Coyne. They started and said, hey, uh, any places in Florida? And they go, yeah, there's 40 people in Fort Lauderdale. And so they kept going there all excited. When they got there, there was no 40 people. And yet look at what God's done. 
And when, right when he said that, the Lord said, are you trusting 40, 40 people or are you going to trust me? And I looked at this guy and I said, I'm leaving. Because it, was, it had just been confirmed. I think so often we want to trust something we can see rather than trust what has been spoken. Solomon's trusting the chariots. He's starting to accumulate because he can see them. But it's illegal. They're prohibited. At least I believe they are. You can make up your mind. And if, ever, if they are prohibited, then my belief that Solomon starts to compromise in his early years proves true. So let's go look at the law. Something he's already read. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. When kings were to come into power, they're supposed to read the law. And if it wasn't all five books, it was certainly Deuteronomy. Chapter 17, verse 14. When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, I mean, God's all it's all prophecy here, and you possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations. God is telling him, this is what you guys are going to do. You're going to move away from me. You're going to want an earthly king. I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren, you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you. That's why you have to be a born American to be the president of the United States. This is where that comes from. So much of the Constitution is written out of the Bible. He, he may not be a foreigner of you who is not your brother, but he shall not multiply horses for himself. Wow. Nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Double wow. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Triple wow. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself. Oh boy, we know he doesn't do good here. Last, and here's why. Lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Wow. Well, the gold and silver is already there from his dad to build the temple. However, he will stockpile enough gold, silver, and precious stones to pay off our national debt and probably be beyond. So Solomon disregards all four of these. Multiplications of wives, horses, horses from Egypt, and gold, all forbidden by the, by the Lord. And he's already started. I mean, he, he hasn't even built the temple yet, and he's already accumulating something that as a king, he's not supposed to accumulate. If he was just a guy, yeah, accumulate all the horses you want. It's trade and sell. But he's the king of Israel. Chapter 2 parallels 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Then Solomon determined, the, the, the word is more like he reasoned in his heart to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal house for himself. David, the dad is dead for how many days? We don't know. And whatever place dad was living in that he brought his kids up, whatever palace that Solomon was brought up in, apparently it's not good enough for Solomon because we see that he'll build both God's house and is going to build himself a new house. They just have different days of completion, like Way different, and that makes sense. I mean, you think about how elaborate the temple is. You would think, yeah, it would take way longer to build the temple than it would be Solomon's new digs. Look at verse 2. 
So Solomon selected 70,000 men to bear burdens. They had no semis back then. 80,000 to quarry stone in the mountains. They had no drills back in those days, at least not electrical or mechanical ones. And you think of these massive stones they had to cut out of the mountains. If you ever want to wonder where your granite countertop comes from, you should like Google it and watch a YouTube. It's like two and a half minutes. It, to me, it's the most fascinating thing. They bring these big, massive chunks of granite out of the out of these different places. I guarantee it's not American OSHA standards. People die there every year, and they bring them out and then they cut them up, and it's pretty amazing. And then 3,600 to oversee them because every job needs a lot of upper management. So I did the math, checked it, rechecked it. So one ever overseer to every 41.6 men. Now that's some fat management right there. Chapter 2 is Solomon soliciting the help of Gentiles to bring Gentile lumber and a Gentile master craftsman that we saw in 1 Kings chapter 5. You can read all about that if you don't remember. Look down at verse 13. And now I have sent, this is the king up there, up in the north. And now I have sent a skillful man endowed with understanding, Huram, my master craftsman. This is all new information coming up. The son of a woman of the daughters of Dan. Okay, so that would make his mom what? Jewish. And his father was a man of Tyre. That would make him, yeah, so 50%. Jew of the tribe of Dan, 50% Gentile from Tyre, as mom is busted on her sin here. She actually crossed over to Syria. A Jewish woman married a man from Tyre. He is skilled to work in gold and silver, bronze and iron, stone and wood, purple and blue, fine lemon, uh, yeah, it could be lemons or linens and crimson, and to make an engraving and to accomplish any plan which may be given to him with your skillful man and with the skillful man of your Lord David, your father. Interesting, isn't it? She gets busted on her sin, but a lot of the others got a pass. Verse 17 gives us a history lesson of sorts. Then Solomon numbered all the aliens, that was not E.T., uh, who were in the land of Israel after the census in which David, his father, had numbered them, and there were found to be 153,000... 600. And of course, if you look back at verse 2 and add all those numbers up, it's going to be 153,600. And so this tells us they were not Jewish people. They're probably Canaanite slaves. Those that they've, and I probably some Gibeonites in there. Remember the ones that faked it? Said, hey, we've come from such a long way. No Jews, all foreigners. Chapter 3 parallels 1 Kings 6, verse 1. Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, the exact same place where Jesus Christ will be crucified in the exact same spot where Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice. And he began to build on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. So with a great observation here, you go, whoa, wait a second. Fourth year? Seems like you're ready to go in the first year. Well, think about it. How long is it going to take you to cut stones up in the mountains? They ain't doing that overnight or in a weekend. 
And then you got to go up into Lebanon. You got to cut all these cedar trees down. You got to carry them to the ocean, make rafts. You got to float them down to Joppa, uh, disband. You got to get them back up here. Then someone has to make lumber out of them. That ain't happening overnight. So this would tell me it took them three plus years of cutting stone and, and timber and dressing out stones and preparing lumber before they could build anything. You know, they had to get a lot. They had to get a foundation down. A lot of prep work. Plus, Solomon had to establish some new positions in his government. Now, in the parallel chapter in 1 Kings 6, the Lord shows up to Solomon, and my guess is through a prophet. Here's, let me, I'll read it to you. The word of the Lord came to Solomon. We don't know how that word of the Lord came to him, saying, concerning this temple which you are building, if you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father David, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Now, isn't that interesting? I mean, he's 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 kind of like started. God's already appeared to him one time, said, hey, what do you want? I'll give it to you. And now God kind of comes like midstream and says, hey, don't forget to, Keep my commandments, execute my judgments. It's almost like God can see him starting to waver. And so God sends somebody to him and says, hey, wake up. I mean, I don't know if Solomon was already multiplying wives at this time. He was definitely multiplying horses. We already saw that. But there is something going on in his heart and the Lord sends a message to him. You want to know why people don't read their Bibles at home? Because they don't want to hear a message for them from the Lord. Because here, you can blow it off as me on the radio. You can blow it off as a person. But when it's just you and your Bible, how are you supposed to blow it off? You can't. you got to cut it out. Oh, oh, I spilled coffee on that page. But that's why people don't read their Bibles. They can say they're too busy. Yeah, that's not true. Hey, this was part of my Bible reading this morning. I'm sure I've taught it a bazillion times. Jesus comes, but I've never connected thus. I don't know, maybe I have. But Jesus comes into Samaria, he sits at the well. We all know the story. He's tired. It says he's tired. The boys take off to get f food, and he's sitting there, and here comes the woman. It's, it's, it's straight up, 12 noon. She's, you know, the woman has had five husbands and is sleeping with another one. And as, when they all show back up, it's like, hey, um, we got the food. And this is what Jesus said. I have food to eat that you know not of. Well, wait a second. It says he was so tired that he rested. But then he engages this gal. And then when they come back with the food, it's like, no, I don't need food, man, because I'm refreshed. All I know is that's true in my life. And if it's true in Jesus' life and it's true in my life, I guarantee it's true in your life. You know, if you like do God's work and, and not go, oh, I got to go feed my face and not do God's work. You know what? I guarantee if you do it the other way around, you actually might be full without even eating. I can see that in my life so many times. It's there. It's uh, John chapter four, I think. Somewhere between John chapter one and John chapter 10. It's there. Can't miss it. The chronicle writer skips this 
and only shows the Lord showing up at the completion of the temple in chapter 7. But the king's writer, they don't. So in the book of 1 Kings, you have two visits and a word from the Lord, uh, from the prophet, or in the, in the, in the other one. But in, second, in the Chronicles, you only have two visits. Where in Kings, you get two visits and a prophet. In 2 Samuel, David's sin, Tamar's rape, and Absalom's revolt is recorded. But like we saw in 1 Chronicles, none of that. However, in 2 Chronicles, we have the writer that points out a Jewish woman married to a Gentile man. Just an observation. I don't know what to make of it, other than it's pretty biased. The rest of this chapter and into chapter 4 is temple details. We've already saw it once. We saw, saw it again when they built it. God bless you. You should... Read it again, just to get your details right. Chapter 5 parallels 1 Kings chapter 8. And, and chapter 5 is short. Chapter 8 of Kings is very long, so it's going to encompass a couple chapters here. Verse 1 in uh, chapter 5. So all the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. 1 Kings tells us Solomon was seven years in building the temple. The chronicle writer doesn't tell us that. In 1 Kings 7, we'll see it. It says the chronicle writer writes, but Solomon took uh, 13 years to build his own house. Now the chronicles writer leaves that out too. In 1 Kings 7, it says Solomon took 13 years to build his own house. The, the, chronicle, the, the chronicle writer, I think I might have messed that up. The chronicle writer will tell us in chapter 8 that Solomon spent a total of 20 years but he will not make a specific breakdown like the writer of 1 Kings does. Because the 1 Kings writer writes, Solomon spent seven years on the temple, 13 years on his house. Let's see. That's seven years for God's house and 13 years on my house. Huh. And see, if this chronicle, he's kind of biased here because he kind of makes the kings and everybody look good, takes everything kind of bad away. Where the, whoever's writing the kings, man, they're about as open and as honest as it gets here. Again, just an interesting observation as the chronicle writer once again seeks to make Israel's history look very good, except for the woman who went up and married a Gentile. Verse 2. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel in Jerusalem, that they might bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord up from the city of David, which is in Zion. And like I said, we saw all of this in 1 Kings, where they bring the Ark of the Covenant up from uh, of the Lord up from the city of David, which is Zion. And we saw all of this in 1 Kings, where the Ark comes in. The rest of this chapter is for your reading pleasure tonight. However, we saw this before. Um, look at verse 10. Nothing was in the Ark except the two tablets which Moses put there for a when the Lord had made a covenant with the children of Israel when they had come out of Egypt. Well, my first observation is, where's the rest of the stuff? Right? Where's the jar of manna, and where's that rod of Aaron that's budded? No one knows. My first guess, there's all kinds of guesses. I'm going to give you mine. The Philistines took it out when the ark was there. I don't know if it's true, and they just never put them back in. Maybe they sold them on eBay or something I mean, can you imagine? It's like, hey, all of a sudden it's dated, you know, the manna is dated to like, you know, 4,000 B.C. And I don't know. 
Uh, chapter 6 parallels 1 Kings 8 still. In this chapter is the dedication of the temple almost word for word, like put them side by side. That's what I did. God shows up and the priests have to stop for they can't see. But in verse 13, we see a word for the first time in the entire Bible. Look down at verse 12. That's where we're going to pick it up. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. That is word for word out of 1 Kings 8. But verse 13 is the first podium in the Bible. It's, it's, it doesn't show up anywhere else. Well, it does pass this, but for Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits high, five cubits wide, or five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high. So it's seven and a half by seven and a half feet square and four and a half feet high. And he and he said it. Did, are you lost, Jen? Verse twelve and thirteen. Sorry. That's okay. Okay, I'm there. Okay. And he said it in the midst of the court, and he stood on it. Which, okay, that's cool. He's going to stand up so he can preach to everybody. And he knelt down on his knees before all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. And he said, no, I'm not judging the guy. I'm sure he's humble and everything. Uh, I mean, he's he's four and a half feet off the ground. Now, if he's in the Philippines, he, his knees would be at the same level of a lot of people. And even when he kneels, he's still going to be a foot and a half taller than everybody. I'm just saying, I don't, I don't really know what, what's going on here. I, I, I can see if he put it up there so he could preach to them, so they could all hear. But, and I'm sure he's just a humble guy. Chapter seven parallels First Kings eight still, and into chapter nine, verse one. New info here. When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the house had filled the Lord's house. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, verse 1 is new info uh, that it filled the house. They couldn't go in and uh, minister anymore. However, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's all new right here. It's not in First Kings. But it's new here. And so, you know, it's like, so if, it's like God wants us to know that. I don't know why they left it out of First Kings. I, could, I think it's kind of a cool little thing, you know. They got the altar, you know, because when you read First Kings, it's just going, well, Solomon's offering up all these animals, which is true, but not the first one. First one, boom, man, God sanctified that altar, consecrated it when he brought the fire from heaven. So it's here in First Chronicles. And in response to that fire, verse 3, when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement. I'm assuming Solomon's still on his little porch there. And worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Now, see that little phrase there? For he's good, his mercy endures forever. That's now the third time only in the Chronicles that we read this phrase here. Kind of cool little trivia fact. For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. So it's and so for me, because I've been doing this whole thing, is okay, so you're kind of like picky on this woman. You add in for he's good, for his mercy endures forever. You leave out all the other bad stuff, but you put this in multiple times for his good, his mercy endures forever. I don't know what to make of it. Again, it's just observation. Uh, we have to read verse 5. King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep 
So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. That is a lot of barbecue. Too bad they didn't season it. You know, that'd be... <laughs> Maybe throw a little wheat on it. But you know what else there, you know, what else there had to be? Had to have been a lot of blood. No doubt that blood was flowing all the way down to the Kidron Valley. I tried figuring it out. Too much conflicting information, you know, from four gallons to ten gallons. To, I know we've we've butchered four or five cows before, and that blood is long and it's wide and it's you know it's like two inches deep because it doesn't like just like water. Where to go? No, it just it's like the lava. You know, it's kind of because they do it on a hillside. So I wish I could have told you how much, how many gallons of blood there were, but I can guarantee you there's more than 120,000 gallons of blood because the smallest number on a bull was four gallons. So 120,000 times four, or uh, no, 22,000 times four, that's 100,000. 100,000 gallons of blood, that's going to make some mess. Imagine how bloody it was that day. Here they are, they're rejoicing, but I'll tell you what, the priests aren't rejoicing, so they solicit... They, so in a sense, they consecrate the Levites just for the day, right? Levites can't be priests, only those of Aaron's line. But on this day, it's like, no doubt, they are literally drowning in blood. And so all the Levites get in there and help them get all this meat cooked up. Because, again, a small portion goes to the Lord, a portion goes to the priests, and then the other portion is yours, man. It's all barbecued up. Talking big multi-day barbecue here in this chapter 7 and in the parallel passage in 1st Kings 9 the Lord appears to in person a second time to Solomon but the words that are used are vastly different if the king if the kings walk away from the Lord God and serve idols versus if the people walk away so here are the words from 1st Kings 9 6 you're gonna have to hang with me for a minute and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about so go to 1st Kings 9 6 first God's already come one time. You have the plaque on your wall, I guarantee it. If you have any Christian anything on your wall, you've got this one. So here's the context. So in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 6, and then we're going to go right back to where we were. But if you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but you go and serve other gods and worship them, and I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. And this house which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among the people. And as for this house, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and will hiss and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will answer, because they forsook the Lord their God. God was going to make sure that the surrounding nations would know the right answer. No doubt he put that answer in their mind. But because they forsook the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods and worshipped them and served them, therefore the Lord has brought all of this calamity on them. End of conversation with the king. That's it. That's all that's recorded there. However, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, it still has tough words like this, but it also has other words. So let's go back. Different message of hope to the people here. And I guarantee it. Some of you have a small part of this on a, of a plaque on your wall. Look at verse 12 in First Chronicles 7 as we pick up the Lord's visit to Solomon. 
verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night, First Chronicles 7, 12, and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Solomon will, will get more to him in a minute as God now addresses the common people first. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. Okay, he's not addressing Solomon right now. He's addressing the people. Okay, we all clear here? Verse 13, there's a shift. And God's people were Israel in the Old Testament, and we are his people in the New Testament. Why? Why? Why are we his people in the New Testament? Nope. Wrong answer. What did you say, Thad? Nope. I want, there's one, not that any of that ain't right, but there is one specific answer that's dead on. No. Why are we God's people in the New Testament? No. Come on. No. No. Why don't you stop digging a hole there and think? Nope. What does Jesus tell them all to pray to in, Gen in Matthew chapter 6 that we skip? We're going to pick up on Sunday. To the Father, winner, winner, chicken dinner. We're his kids because we have a Father in heaven. They didn't have that. They didn't have a Father in heaven. They had the Lord God Almighty. Okay, so we are his people because we have a dad. Okay, so, so that means whatever this is valid for, for them, is so valid for God's house today. Okay, I'm glad we got that one. I just, you know, it's, he's our father. We have a father in heaven. The son gives us that relationship there, and the Holy Ghost empowers us and opens doors. And If my people who are called by my name will, one, humble themselves, two, and pray, three, and seek my face, four, and turn from their wicked ways, five, and do petitions, six, and start letter-writing campaigns, seven, and call in, eight. Oh, no, sorry. I, those were in my notes. No, they weren't. Four things here. This, this is where the church is so misty. Hey, look, you want to do all those other stuff? Great. God bless you. That is not here. That is not God's cure. This is it right here. Humble themselves is first. Why is that first thinking about where we are in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7? Where does the whole thing carry out of seeking to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world? Where does that start? you got to be poor in spirit. Because, see, when you're no longer poor in spirit, you're strong in yourself. If you're strong in yourself, you're going to fail. You're not going to have any impact on the kingdom. However, poor in spirit makes me humble in myself because I realize I'm a desperate person. And I, if I don't realize I'm a desperate person, I'm never going to pray. And if I'm never going to pray, I'm ne he's never going to ask or he's never going to answer. And like I said, too much prayer is just telling God stuff rather than asking. But when you realize how desperate you are, step two, you will pray. And you'll seek the Lord's face for forgiveness and conviction of sin. Because it's not all these other things that are in the world that's the problem. No, it's you and me and every other person that calls himself a Christian. That's the problem. Of course, we don't want to say that because then that makes us feel bad. But that's the truth. 
It ain't politicians that are blind. How can we expect blind people to fix anything? Anybody? You know, you're going to get in a car with a blind driver? How about an airplane? Well, maybe. <laughs> if it's autopilot, it works on takeoff and landing. But when you are desperate, which is what you have to be as you humble yourself, you will pray. But you got to realize how desperate you are. You're going to humble yourself. You're going to pray. You're going to seek the face of the Father. And when you seek the Father's face, as those three things happen in a believer's life, you will turn from your wicked ways. I'm not, I don't have any wicked ways. Oh, uh, let's not get on to anything that we're supposed to be doing. Like, I don't know, sharing the gospel, preaching the gospel, any of those things. Let's not get into that. Dragging people to church. I'm just saying. None of us are like where we really need to be. And that's why the church is in the state that it's in today. Because it's that way all across the world. But when we do these things, then God will act. Look at this. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. That's what we need to happen. But the only way this will happen is if church gets it together. But it has to be in this order. Humble myself. Realize how desperate I am. Then I'll pray. And as I pray, I'm going to seek the, the face of the Father for forgiveness on my part. Well, and, and, and for proof of this, go read Nehemiah. Go read Daniel. Because they're including themselves in with the mess, for lack of better words. They're not above it. No, it's, they use the words we, not them. Oh, it's them. No, it's we. Read it. That's what they say. They use we. They both do. And they both were in desperate times. And God will heal their land. Read this says. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. We don't need that because we have Jesus. That means we can humble ourselves because we're desperate. We can pray. We can seek the face of the Father. And we can turn from our wicked ways anyway because Jesus says, no man comes to the Father but through me. So, so we can all, we don't have to go to the temple. And this needs to happen in church houses all around the world. And it has to happen in all of our personal houses all around the world. If we want to see God act. And if we don't, then it's, it's just, it's just going to continue on. Might as well read church history. Because we can see exactly where it ends up. It tanks out at the bottom. And then all of a sudden it reboots. Just saying, somewhere along the line, Jesus is going to come back. Or it's going to tank at the bottom and you better be on fire for Jesus. Because when it takes at the bottom, the, the fake church destroys the real church. Go read church history. That's how it's always been. It hasn't changed. But God would act if a church would put this in action. It's convinced of that. Verse 19 down to Solomon, uh, the king, is very similar as what we read in 1 Kings chapter 9. Uh, but if you, Solomon, turn away 
and forsake my statutes and my commandments which I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot them from my land which I have given them. And this house which I have sanctified for my name, I will outcast, I will cast out of my sight and will make it a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. And as for, and as for this house which is exalted, Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done this to the land in this house? Then they will answer, Because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and embraced other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this calamity on them. That, that, that could be said about our, us. We've, we've, we've uh, embraced other gods and worshipped other things and served them. Right? That could be said about the church today. I mean, proof? I don't know. Where do you want me to start? How about every time a new book comes up that, out that's like a Christian quick fix book, there's millions of them sold because you get to stay in control of your life, but you still get a little price. And they sell millions of them. Or guys predict that, that Jesus is coming back and they sell millions of them, but they're wrong and no one ever calls them out on it. They just keep writing books. This has been going on since the 80s, probably earlier. I became a believer in the 80s. People just keep following them. And we know what happens here. The whole thing gets washed out. Chapter 8 parallels 1 Kings also still in verse 1, it came to pass at the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the house of the Lord. That's all it says. Notice there's no breakdown here. So that's seven years for God's house and his own house. That was 13 years, 20 total. That the cities which Hiram had given to Solomon, Solomon built them. And he settled the children of Israel there. And Solomon went to Hamath, Zobah, and seized it. Nobody addresses this. My guess is that's his one and only military conquest. I don't know if he used military force. Maybe he just surrounded it with all his chariots and said, hey, we want this. I, I don't know, but that it's there. It says he seized it. I don't. Uh, verse 4 and 6 is Solomon's building campaign. Verse 7 through 10 tells us how Solomon built everything. Verse 11, more disobedience. Now Solomon brought the daughter. Watch how this is worded. This is classic. He's going to speak out of both sides of his mouth. Now Solomon brought the daughter of Pharaoh up from the city of David to the house he had built for her. For he said, My wife shall not dwell in the house of David, king of Israel, because the places to which the ark of the Lord has become or has come are holy. So what's wrong with that? No, that's you just read something. I I need an interpretation here. What, what's what's wrong with that? No, no, he's not marrying. It's his wife. You got. You can't look at observations. You're gonna miss it. I need an interpretation. And still willingly 
living his life. Because, see, he knows it's wrong. Okay? Look, he says that. I can't bring her here because this place is holy, so I have to bring her over here. He knows that. He knows it in his mind. Maybe even in his heart. He knows it's wrong. Yeah, so he's definitely playing the hypocrite. But he knows it's wrong. Okay, um, like, uh, hello, uh, <clears throat> uh, if you know it's wrong, then don't you think you should repent? Okay, can you see that? Can you see he, he purposely knows it's wrong here? Can we, can we all see that? I, I'm, I'm going to bring her up. Oh, wait, but I can't actually have her live here because, you know, she's got to live over here because I know she's unclean. and We'll just get together and still sing Kumbaya. He knows it's it's wrong. But he, it, it, typical, like a lot of politicians here, man, he's talking out of both sides of his mouth, depending on who he's talking to. Well, if he, I'm going to talk to these guys. I'm talking over here. I would think this would have caught your attention when, if you would have listened to what you said. I think it's the first wife he marries. I, I, I'm not positive of that, what, but I know this, one down, 999 to go. She's the first one. And you know what's really sad about this? Is she wasn't even a Jewish babe. I mean, no offense to American women, but Jewish women are hot. American women are hot too. However, it's not like they're like, I don't know. I, I don't know what nationality where the women aren't hot. So I'll just make one up. Snarkle Farkle Land. <laughs> just to be safe. I mean, look at Esther was taken out of every other woman. Esther was taken, Jewish. And he takes an Egyptian. Verse 12 and 13 is Solomon's religious activity. Verses 14 and 15 are all well-ordered by David. Verse 16, now the work of Solomon was well-ordered from the day of the foundation of the house of the Lord until it was finished. So the house of the Lord was completed. So everything's built. Okay, he's built, he's built this house and this house. He built the house over here. You can go read all about all the stuff he's built. So everything is built. But you know what? He's not satisfied inside. So what's he going to do? Something that has never, ever successfully been done in the history of Israel. Let's go sailing. And I don't think Solomon's sailing. I think he's funding it. And, uh, and um, Hiram is going to, it's going to be his boats, his guys, Solomon's guys are going to go along for the ride. But look what it says here in verse 17. Then Solomon sent, Solomon went to Ezi and Geber and Elath on the sea coast in the land of Edom. He, I don't think he went. He just sent his servants. And here and sent him ships by the hand of his servants and servants who knew the sea. They went with the servants of Solomon to Ophir. No one knows where that place is. I mean, I wish someone did, like me. And they acquired 450 talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon. So he's bored. I mean, everything's built. That's what's mind-blowing here. He's built, he's bored. You, you got bored with the Egyptian wife, so what do you get in the second one? I mean, I, I, he, he, every, all his stuff's built, so he starts sailing, and he brings back 450 talents of gold. If a talent is 120 pounds, that's 864 ounces of gold. Gold's dropped a little bit from last week. It's $1,428 an ounce. And so, uh, um, if this is 
864,000 ounces of gold. Then the total is $1,233,792,000 in gold. Man, not bad for a sailing expedition. I mean, those, those ship hunters would love to come across something with a couple million of coins. Hey, this one, one billion, one, one haul. Chapter 9 parallels 1 Kings 10. Verses 1 through 12 is almost word perfect when the Queen of Sheba shows up in 1 Kings, 1 Kings 10. I've heard this said before. I personally don't believe it. But in there it says, and, and Solomon gave the Queen of Sheba everything her heart desired. Guzik writes, that could be a kid. I've heard that before. I don't, I, it's like, okay, I just, but I saw it in his commentary, so that's why I'm going to just blame it on him. I've always thought, no way. I just don't, I don't see that. That's really stretching everything. He said it, so you can, you can have to take that up on him. Uh, verse 13 in chapter 9. Still trying to fill the hole. The weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was dun, 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 666 talents of gold. I'm sure that's coincidental. However, the worldly man and the number of man is 666 talents of gold each year. Coincidental, I'm sure. So that's more than 1.2 billion besides what the traveling merchants and traders brought. And all the kings of Arabia and governors of the country brought gold and silver to Solomon. And King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered uh, gold and 600 shekels of hammered gold went into each shield. Okay, so how much is that? So the same Bible chart that I'm looking at for how much a talent is says each shekel is a half an ounce. So that, so that means these large shields, it's 18.75 pounds of gold per shield or a little over two gallons of milk. A gallon of milk is eight pounds. So grab two gallons of milk plus a, so that's 16 plus a couple of pounds. That's your shield. You know, just wave that around for a little bit and grab your sword. Now you know how buffed up those guys were. They had a shield in one hand and they had the sword in the other. Two gallons of milk, overhead high. Now here, you're going to get killed. Here, we'll save you. Or here, or whatever. That'll be Tony's next exercise when he goes running. A gallon on each side. <laughs> uh, he also made 300 shields of hammered gold, 300 shekels of gold went into each shield. So cut those numbers in half. The king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Uh, verses 17 to 19 describe his next undertaking. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. You can read about how this whole thing is built. We've already seen it before. I suggest to you, he is bored. And thus, his throne building is part one. Verse 20, part two. All of King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold and all the vessels of the house of the forests of Lebanon were pure gold. Not one was silver, for this silver was accounted as nothing in the days of Solomon. Verse 21, I think, is part three of being bored or unfulfilled, Solomon. For the king's ships went to Tarshish with the servants of Hiram. Once every three years, the merchant ships came bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and monkeys. I mean, everyone needs apes and monkeys, right? You know, you're bored. you got to sit there and watch them hang and swing and run around your palace and stuff. I mean... To me, he, he just, that, that, see, the thing with the, the flesh monster, it just keeps wanting more and more and more when you feed it. I mean, he's, I don't, it just seems like he's bored. So verse 22, so King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. Um, did, did you see that? 
King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. I'll tell you what, he doesn't know how to spend that wisdom very well on his own personal choices. And all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Every man brought his presents, articles of silver and gold, garments, armor, spices, horses, and mules at a set rate year by year. So it's like he had a speaking fee. <laughs> hey, you want to come see me? This is what it's going to cost you. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses, all prohibited by the kings of Israel and chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities. So not only is he not supposed to have chariots, he has chariot cities. He has horse breeding cities. And uh, he stationed them in the chariot cities and with the king at Jerusalem. So he has chariots everywhere. Verse 26. So he reigned over all the kings from Jordan, from the Jordan River. It says the river. I'm assuming that's the Jordan River. From the Jordan River to the land of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt. So from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean, as far south as the border of Egypt, and as far north as up to Hiram's land, that where Syria is. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedar trees as abundant as the sycamores, which are in the lowland. And they brought horses to Solomon from Egypt and from all the lands, again, strictly forbidden. Now, the rest of the Acts of Solomon, first and last, are they not written in the book of Nathan the prophet? We don't have that book. In the prophecy of Aijah the Shilonite, we don't have that book. And in the visions of Edo the seer concerning Jeroboam the son of Nebat, we don't have that book either. Verse 30, Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel 40 years, and Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father, and Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. But here's the question, is he in heaven? Is he in heaven? He's got, we've, we know, because we've already seen it, those, all those women turned him to serve other gods. And before you answer, is Josh Harris going to make it into heaven? Everybody see what happens? He no longer believes he, that the Christian is the right way, the right thing. The kiss dating goodbye book, he's recounting all of that. So I, I think he should, personally should, think he should rebate all the book. It's like, look, you don't believe in it, then just send everybody back, back your money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he, as a pastor, I just don't believe any of that. And he apologized to the homosexual community and all that stuff. Okay, well, is he going to get into heaven? That sounds like you got to dismiss great portions out of your Bible, just like Solomon did. So do they get in? I don't know. But I'll tell you this. I don't want to be in either one of their lines come judgment day. So we're done with Solomon. But listen, what is missing as we sign off with King Solomon? Because we're, we, we're done. We're done with King Solomon. What's missing? What's missing? Uh, something, that's, so, something about Solomon. First Kings chapter 11. The Chronicle writer, is, he's done. He had a, a wife. Really? Yeah, an Egyptian one. Really? That's it? Yeah, just one. Oh, he kind of sounds like a rock star superstar. He got too, he assembled he uh, he assembled too much gold and too many horses. But hey, you know, only God will forgive that. First Kings eleven. But King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from whom the nations of whom the Lord had said, 
to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. They were supposed to kill them all. They're the Canaanites. They're supposed to kill them. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Huh. Somehow Solomon thought he was strong enough. Solomon clung to these women in love. Yeah, I bet he did. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. He ain't getting in. Because then no matter how well you start, what matters is how well you finish. You should start well. You should end well. We're going to make tons of mistakes along the journey. But you, but you can't go seeking and worshiping other gods. And here's the problem in our world today. There's gods all around us, and we don't even think they're gods. We just think it's part of American life. This is American life. You know, kids in the Philippines, what do they want to do more than anything when they meet an American? Huh? They want to come to America. It's like, you know, first of all, hold on a second. Not all it's cracked up to be. It is still the greatest place to live. There are idols everywhere. We just don't call them that. I mean, how can you call something that takes all your time not an idol when it robs you of your time and devotion away from the Lord? I don't know. That's what it says. And the wives turn his heart after other gods. We can take that word out. After other things. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God. Right? Because gods are things, right? Can we agree to that? Gods are things. So if you look at this, and then his wives, his parents, his friends turned his heart after other things. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord. That's what it says. Once again, the writer of Chronicles leaves all this out. But he had no problem writing of one Jewish woman who married a Gentile. <laughs> again, just an observation. Father, um, we thank you for what we see here. Lord, we want to be able to learn from Solomon's life. Lord, what compromise can, can be